This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Nothing we expected, yet everything we need. That's what Michael and Lauren McAfee suggest you'll find when you read the Bible for yourself. That's their charge to the millennial generation in their new book, Not What You Think. Why the Bible might be nothing we expected, yet everything we need, published by Zondervan. Michael and Lauren write this book to millennials, those born between 1980 and 1995. Believe it or not, this is the largest generation in American history, 78 million or one in three adults today. Within five years, this generation will account for 75% of the U.S. workforce. Michael and Lauren write to their millennial peers, which includes me born in 1981. Michael is Director of Community Initiatives for Museum of the Bible and a teaching pastor in Oklahoma City. Lauren's father, Steve Green, founded Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and she works at the corporate office of Hobby Lobby. They're both pursuing PhDs in ethics and public policy from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In Not What You Think, Michael and Lauren are honest about themselves and the Bible, which is appropriate since unpolished honesty is what you get in the Bible. They write this, the Bible is a unique source of comfort because compared with all the other books on the market today, the Bible is the most honest about the failures of humankind. You will not find a more authentic ancient religious text than the Bible. You may think Job is about finding a job, as Michael's friend did. Well, you're in for a rude awakening if so. The story might just be what God intends to carry you through crisis. Michael and Lauren join me on Gospel Bound to discuss happiness, authority, suffering, and the surprises we find when we read the Bible for ourselves. Thank you for joining me, Michael and Lauren. Thanks for having us. I want to start with you. Millennials pursue happiness, but they don't report being very happy. Why not? I think that for our generation, we we see things changing so rapidly. We've got, you know, there's a new iPhone every 12 months, um, Instagram, you scroll and you see so many things that you don't have. And so I think that um, there, there are things in place that our, our generation has grown up with, such as social media, um, rapid change um, that has lent towards our generation thinking that happiness is going to be found in obtaining the things that uh, we're constantly being marketed to that we are told we need. And, and all of those things are um, frivolous and passing away. And so I think one of the things that we kind of highlight in our book is the idea of the Bible's timelessness and the uniqueness in that for our generation who can get so caught up in things that um, are not timeless. And so for happiness, you know, it, it can be really fleeting to get the latest iPhone or whatever, have the coolest post on social media. And then, you know, five seconds later, it doesn't really matter. So happiness, we, we've, 
you know, we try and wrestle through that in the book in an honest way and say, let's think a little deeper about what we're really um, using in our lives to kind of shape our idea of happiness. And we encourage millennials to look toward the Bible, something that has been around for millennia, that has been a significant book in many people's lives, millions of people's lives, and is timeless and is gives gives something deeper that that can give um, something even beyond happiness, and that is peace and joy. Uh, so, so yeah, we we hope that our generation will uh, be thoughtful about that and considering the Bible. Well, Michael, access to the Bible has never been more, I guess never been so easy and the digital transformation is just remarkable when you see that and you guys touch on that in the book but given the accessibility of the bible what prevents more millennials from picking up and reading the bible and this is the key for themselves and not just to take what somebody else has perhaps said or what they've perhaps heard about the bible exactly that's but i love what you just said colin that's that's really the the challenge that we end not what you think with which is uh to in reading the bible for yourselves we intend to challenge the uh, skeptical millennial that has watched you know an an hour of late night talk show where they're ripping the bible apart and making fun of it poking fun at different aspects of the bible and shaping their entire view of this book that has withstood uh, criticism throughout uh for many centuries to say hey you're you're taking what's universally pretty much accepted as the most significant book and in many ways, the most significant item in history and dismissing it because of someone else's opinion. Why don't you read it for yourself before coming to a conclusion that it's not for you? Uh, but we also intend to challenge the uh, our peers that would be described as Bible engaged or, or would Bible believing rather that aren't engaging with the scriptures for themselves and are uh, kind of have a, a shallow belief of, I was told that the Bible is God's word and, uh, and I, I haven't wrestled with it. I'm not engaging with it for myself. I'm just kind of receiving platitudes and, and, you know, on my timeline, Jeremiah 29, 11 pops up. And so that's my engagement with scripture. We're wanting to say, you actually haven't read the Bible for yourself either. And, if we're going to be thinking people today and we're going to engage with uh, all of the great ideas and all the great books and and thoughts throughout uh, the world and that we're connected and we can, uh, we the Bible deserves a seat at the table, uh, deserves a the attention for you to come to the conclusion about what this book is for yourself rather than only taking what others have said to be true about it. I was... Uh... Not, I guess, not shocked, but maybe still a little bit disheartened, actually a lot disheartened. I was speaking a few years ago at Cornell University, Ivy League school to Christians there, and they were describing to me some of the challenges that they face on campus. And I asked them what their peers think of Christianity. And the the Christian student said, it's very clear, they think about one church. Everything they know and think about Christianity boils down to one church. You guys want to guess which church that was? I'm afraid to. I know. I don't know. I didn't, I know. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can guess. Westboro Not Baptist. Westboro Baptist. I mean, that uh, probably would have been the two choice, but Westboro Baptist. And uh, I said, let's just stop for a second 
And let's think about how some of the world's most intelligent young people think of the bedrock of Western civilization, this remarkable movement, the largest religion in the world, and they only think of it as an overgrown family cult from Topeka, Kansas. Yeah, wow. That's a a bit of a challenge. So, I was talking about Christianity there, not just the the Bible, uh, but of course, I can see the exact same problems there for the Bible from people who, I mean, if all you know is Westboro Baptist, it's just pretty clear you haven't spent any time investigating that for yourself. And that's just, it can be very discouraging. That's why I appreciate your guys' uh, challenge in this book. Um, Michael, I want to ask you this question as well. This is a very common theological move you often see from critics outside, but also I think inside the church as well. And that's people who try to separate Jesus from the Bible. Explain what's wrong with that move. Yeah. Um, well, Jesus, we would say, doesn't give you uh, that opportunity to, right? He he himself uses the Bible as the bedrock for his life. As a matter of fact, I'll read um, something we didn't write in the book, uh, but from our forward, Tim Keller, uh, talks about how uh, Jesus himself that is it doesn't give you space to have a an understanding of who he is outside of the scripture. Um, with the scripture, Jesus made every decision, interpreted every event, and got the strength to face every challenge. It was the mainspring of his life. Everything was understood through the grid of scripture, and everything was done through the power of scripture. So that means it would be impossible to embrace Jesus and reject the basis for everything he believed and did. To respect Jesus, you must respect scripture. And to make Jesus the basis of your life, you must accept the basis of his. So um, I I love that. And that, that really was what we were wanting to drive at with this book, is that Jesus is a popular figure, which is phenomenal. We're, we're pleased that many millennials who would not identify as Christians say that Jesus was a great teacher, a great man, and that's a fine starting place. Uh, But if you're going to begin there, we want to ultimately lead you to the place that was the bedrock of his place, which was the very word of God. It seems that a lot of people who are trying to separate Jesus from the Bible aren't doing that to somehow prioritize Jesus's teaching, though that does happen in some cases. But perhaps they then can dislodge the Bible so that they can add their own views or substitute their own views for scripture, because Jesus says the hardest things, I think, biblically of anybody in the Bible. So, I'm just not quite sure what that effort is meant to accomplish, except a kind of sleight of hand to be able to perhaps dislodge something that you don't like from the Apostle Paul or maybe the book of Joshua or something like that. I do think that is is an aspect of it. And, And from our research and the conversations that we were having with millennials, we found that for a lot of people, some of the um, assumptions that they were uh, believing about what the Bible is teaching, what it's about, were based off of experiences that they had with either the church or someone who claimed to read sure. the Bible. And so I think for some, because of that, I think for some people, it's easier to kind of take try and take Jesus out of it and deattach them, deattach de- Jesus to the rest of scriptures, because they think like the whole of scriptures 
someone believed in the whole of scriptures and they were a hurtful person to me. So I, I don't really like the Bible, but Jesus, I mean, he seems kind of cool. So I don't want to throw him out. So we'll just accept him. And, you know, I think he's a cool person. He loved people. So we're just going to go with this theme of Jesus and loving people. But, but yeah, we, we try and push back on that in, in, Point, making the point that you that Michael just made that Tim Keller is is uh, writing in the foreword that really you have to take scripture if you're taking Jesus because um, it was the foundation of of, of his life um, and is the whole and Jesus is the uh, what we in our book kind of say the Old Testament and New Testament it's all pointing to Jesus and so we love when people are Jesus fans but you know, we need to look at scripture and seeing what God is doing kind of from beginning to end and in the context there. I really appreciate that the book is not millennial bashing. Um, I, I, it wouldn't make much sense for you to do so, but there, there's plenty of that out there. So we don't need to add, we don't need to add to that. So it's not, it's not bashing millennials. It's targeting millennials though. And I think, one of the things that's most confusing about people bashing millennials is that where do we think they learned? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. if, if they if they have they they learned these from people who are not millennial parents and from church leaders who are not millennials. Uh, Lauren, what attitudes toward the Bible did you guys find in your research uh, had been handed down to millennials by their parents and church leaders? Yeah, I think that for our generation, um, we've seen, uh, we were raised with, uh, well, there were a number of different things that influenced our generation. Um, the fact that we're a very a large generation um, impacts how we see ourselves. So we can kind of, because we're such a large generation, simultaneously have this feeling of importance because we're a part of a big group. And so we think we can accomplish something. Um, but then also the feeling of, you know, being able to get lost in the midst of just the hugeness of our generation, 78 million millennials. Um, but, you know, growing up with social media, we're informed, but we're also impatient. Our generation is also very passionate about a lot of different causes. We're the social justice uh, advocates out there. And um, and so we're, we have a number of influences on our generation. And I think that we having been influenced by those things in our generation, but then having the generations above us that have raised us who many in, in culture have been taking steps back from church engagement. So, you know, whenever I was young, I may have been at church uh, on average three or four times a week. Whereas today the average family is maybe if they're really dedicated to church attenders, they're there once a week. And so um, I think that that has also played its effect in our generation and just kind of seeing this, um, lack of commitment and our generation wants authentic, uh, just anything that is authentic because we've grown up being kind of marketed to and, and sold on so many things. And so, um, I think that those in our generation that are believers and, and engage in scripture and, and have a, a faith commitment, are looking to have a deeper faith than maybe they've even been challenged to by some churches who are um, trying to have the coolest light show to attract uh, young people when, you know, you can go find cool light shows anywhere. You know, give give right. us something that's different than culture. And so I think that that has brought some, uh, for those that are believers in our generation, a, a different level of depth. It seems like the contemporary church phenomenon Sometimes when you look at it, you realize it's not very contemporary anymore. 
and yet it's still listed as contemporary. You're like, yeah, that that music was great when my mom was listening to it on the cassette player in the car <laughs> in our Buick Regal back in about '89. Yeah, you know that that's not so. It, it's it's like the the contemporary church phenomenon itself is dated. Yeah. Um, either it continues to kind of move on into greater and greater kind of relevance, which is kind of irrelevant, um, or else it tries to latch on to something more lasting. And so, Michael, let me ask you that. How do you distinguish between old and outdated? Because <laughs> there is um, that assumption in many cases that if it is old, it's somehow not relevant, but there is a distinction. Some things that are old are incredibly helpful and relevant, and they're not the least bit outdated. Yeah, well, I I, I love the way you phrase it right there, and I, I think that's exactly right, that uh, things that are old um, are not by necessity irrelevant and are not necessarily the newer is not always better. That's something we point out and not what you think, that for millennials, we are in this constant pursuit of the new, right? Like the newest iPhone that comes out, we want it. And it's a better version of the old phone. It's got a better camera, you know, if nothing else. And, um, and the, you know, newer cars, obviously now you can, they parallel park for you. You don't have to try and do that on your own. I mean, on and on and on. And so there's kind of this mentality of newer is better. And so newer, you know, churches or newer forms of worship or, or whatever it might be are better. And and there's some great, in the same way, there's some great advances in iPhones and cars and everything. There's some great advances that we've made as the church. And we love, you know, working at Museum of the Bible. I love uh, celebrating, saying, let's be on the cutting edge in some aspects. So I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of uh, having a modern contextualization in our churches. Um, however, what we are wanting to point out, and not what you think is, in our constant pursuit of the new, we have lost sight of something that is timeless, of something old that's not outdated, uh, but that actually has much to say to us in our present day. And yet, typically, from my experience, what often happens is millennials have this kind of shallow view of Jesus, like you're alluding to, that's sort of made in their own image that agrees with everything, uh, agrees with their opinions, their political preferences, on and on and on. And then shape a view of what the Bible is around that. And so then when they come to the scriptures and it speaks out that we are sinners, that we are not basically good people just in and giving us platitudes of how to live an even more full, more happy life. Um, but instead saying, no, actually, the problem is inside of you. It's not outside of you. Uh, and yet it also points us to the remedy, which is far greater than anything we could have hoped for, which was that happiness can be found not from sort of looking within and discovering ourselves, but from looking up and seeing God, seeing Christ for who he is. And so that really, that, that explanation I just gave really explains the tagline of uh, why the Bible might be nothing we expected, yet everything we need. It's not the, you know, culturally affirming, you know, what feels right to you, find your own truth. Um, it stings and that it says, no, there is objective truth that does exist and you are the problem yourself. And yet it also gives us everything we need. It gives us a far better answer and solution than what the world is promising today. Yeah. One of the parts of the book that really stood out to me was what you wrote about the two constants of the Bible. You said the first is the human tendency to fail. The second is God's steadfast love and patience. 
So yes, of course, it can be a very discouraging message if you've grown under that message right there of expressive individualism within our age of authenticity. And yet, I think um, there's plenty of evidence and anxiety levels and things like that, that that view of looking inside yourself doesn't really bring help. You need deliverance from the outside. And that's precisely what the Bible does. Uh, Lauren, I wanted to talk to you about marketing. Uh, You point out that this generation millennials do not trust official sources in corporations because as you mentioned a couple times they're just we're, we're so relentlessly marketed to but it seems like we ought to be able to flip this to our advantage because one of the key sources of millennial trust is word of mouth and what better thing to market than those of us whose lives have been transformed by the words of scripture to share that person to person so is that a viable quote-unquote marketing strategy going (laughs) forward or what am I missing? Yeah, no, it is interesting to consider how our generation having grown up, um, you know, with marketers following us since we were young and and all the ads that you get on social media, um, the way that marketers are realizing millennials are... (laughs) following what they're trying to sell is by yeah going through people. So uh, that's how you see kind of this rise of like social media influencers in terms of they'll show like, oh, well, this is the latest thing I bought and I'm loving it um, because they, they there is that kind of we want a personal witness of someone who's not the company, but is just a friend saying, yeah, I bought this and I love it. So I do think, you know, in, in considering just where we're at as a generation, that can be used to just help us remember that we do have the ability to uh, share our story of how God has changed our lives. And, and as believers, to um, be willing to be honest about our faith and our and authentic about uh, sharing the love of Christ in our context and have the boldness to do that. I think that one of the the other things that is unique about our generation is we've also tended to have a reluctance to push anything that we believe on someone else. Um, so even though we are willing to maybe say like, oh, I use this product and I like it, so I'll vouch for it. We also simultaneously are not p- wanting to push any of our truths on someone else. It's very much a, well, this works for me, but like you get to decide what works for you because of this individualism um, that is is so uh, prevalent in our culture. But so we have to uh, wrestle with that and not shy away then as um, those of us that have a faith and want, want others to ha- have the same uh, relationship with Christ to be willing to say, you know, this is what, this is who Christ is and this is what his teaching is. And, and so I think that that can also bring, bring a challenge because of the, the kind of what we're seeing in our generation. I think um, the situation is fairly complicated there because well, we grew up hearing a lot within the church about the evils of relativism and postmodernism. We heard a lot of things like, yeah, you can't impose your truth on, on anybody else. You can't, you can't force, you know, shove these things down their throat, all that kind of stuff. But I guess, I don't know, do you guys see the same thing I do? I don't, I think that's a very selective approach because Plenty of people shove recycling down my throat. (laughs) Plenty of people shove the idea that consent is the only thing that matters in sex. It kind of seems like maybe that's true of religion. For some reason, people have decided religion is one of those things you can't impose on anybody else. But 
if my Facebook feed is any indication, everybody in my generation is very willing to tell me what to do politically there. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of a confusing thing. But let me jump to politics, Michael, and, and ask you this. This is kind of a complicated question. Okay. So concerning politics, this is what you guys write. Quote, when the Bible becomes the property of one political party, the result is inevitably alienation and rejection, end quote. And I think we can all agree on how that's worked out. But let me follow me here with for a second. So let's say it's the Republicans who take the Bible seriously. That's not always the case, but let's just run with it. Let's say that the Democrats are the ones who don't take the Bible seriously. And thus, the Bible then is seen as a partisan document, which makes it toxic to millennials. This is confusing to me, though, because how does the fact that one party takes the Bible seriously somehow become reason for millennials to reject it? Because why wouldn't you just look and say, well, it's the Democrats that are making the Bible partisan for rejecting it, not so much Republicans who make it partisan by accepting it. It kind of seems like a lose-lose situation for the Bible. It's like saying the Bible is rejected as partisan because it's rejected by partisans. Am I making any sense there at all? Fill me out here. Yeah, no, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, I, I think that, you know, in, in conversations and in our research, we see this statistically that kind of what you were alluding to, uh, that, that group that you spoke to that associated the Bible immediately right. with a hate group, right. that there's a lot of associating um, the scriptures or really, you know, evangelical Christianity with the Republican Party. And so one of the things that I am constantly trying to do as I'm having conversations with non-believers in my life in Oklahoma is is to help kind of decouple or, or separate out um, evangelicals as a voting block from what evangelicalism truly is, uh, which is a theological position. Right. And uh, so so that's kind of what we're driving at and, and totally agree that whenever the Bible becomes uh, the means to kind of strong arm one political platform uh, at the expense of the other, uh, we I would rather uh, the church sort of stand outside of the two party system that exists in our country and be able to critique both and to affirm both uh, where we can really celebrate what Democrats, Republicans, independent, Green Party, Libertarians, whatever kind of group to say, hey, this resonates with scripture. And there are aspects of each party's platform that do resonate with scripture. And so it's not a matter of we want the one that has that resonates with scripture more to win and the other to lose is that we want both to look to scripture as a means of inspiration for how we should love our neighbor. A lot of the latest social psychology that I've been reading for in recent years indicates that in America today, people's political allegiances are more powerful than their religious allegiances and that they will adjust their religious allegiances in order to fit their politics. So I think we commonly hear the story from the right that Republicans have sort of made the Bible toxic by making it partisan. But I think we may lose sometimes the fact that you have a number of people who in wanting to be Democrats then feel like they have to reject the Bible because that's what they view the Democrats as doing. But of course, there's all kinds of consistencies on both sides there in the same party that wants to reject the, the Bible on one topic, then wants to cite the Bible 
on a different topic. So it's very confusing, but I but I agree that you know it's a major problem for the Bible for it to be seen as supporting just one particular agenda. And unfortunately, we have theologians who've lined up across the spectrum who have assured us in their books on politics that the Bible completely and in every case agrees with one party or the other party, depending on where they're coming from, on every question. And that's a just unfortunate there. So let's talk about an example of when the Bible was used prophetically within our culture. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who cited the Bible in defense of his civil rights campaign. And what he did, he appealed to a common standard in American life that everybody could look to together, almost everybody could look to together as an authority. But I'm wondering, either one of you could answer this one, if someone's trying to persuade Americans today, but you can't refer to the Bible, what, what authority are you supposed to appeal to that can somehow unite people on common values and move us forward. Yeah, I I love your example of Dr. King in our PhD seminars. One of my papers I wrote on him because I was so um, captivated by the fact that here was a man that led the civil rights movement and was the leader of this movement for a decade uh, plus because he was a preacher that was able to utilize the language of scripture um, to mobilize a, a movement that brought together um, the church. I, I think for anyone today, I mean, I, I think that's part of what we're saying is I, I think that maybe a mistake that Christians in the church today could make is to say the Bible needs to be um, dominant. Uh, it needs to be anything that's um, that isn't scripture uh, should be thrown out so that, so that it's polarizing where, uh, what I want to advocate for is in a pluralistic society like the one we live in, the Bible just needs a seat at the table. It just needs to be uh, have its fair voice. And if it does, it's truth. And if it's truth, then you shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. That as the Bible is proclaimed, engaged with, uh, even if it's one voice among many, it will rise to the top uh, because it doesn't return void. And so uh, by that, what I mean is that with any a person that's wanting to say you can't bring the Bible into this conversation or you can't bring your religion into this conversation. I want to respond. I'm not telling you the only thing you have to consider is scripture, but I'm saying you do have to consider scripture in addition to these other factors, in addition to these other voices in our society. The Bible deserves a voice. And if the Bible has a fair voice, then uh, even in a neutral kind of uh, level playing field, it will uh, the words of God will will rise to the top and and speak to people. There's one more question here with Michael and Lauren McAfee about their book, Not What You Think. Uh, Lauren, you guys wait until nearly the end of the book to share deeply personal stories, moving stories about how the Bible upheld you during times of distress. And the book was published before you had brought home your daughter, Zion. Yeah. Just tell us how God uses his word to keep you day by day. Yeah. So in the book, you know, you're, you're, you're referring to us sharing our story. We, we shared about how um, for year and year, years and years, we were per, pursuing uh, adoption and trying to have children biologically as well. And the doors were closing every, everywhere we turned in terms of trying to grow our family. And then after six years of trying, we finally were able to successfully adopt our daughter, uh, Zion, um, Zion Laurel, and she she's two years old now. We've had her for just six months, 
And um, since we released the book, we we finalized her adoption. And then um, seven weeks after we adopted Zion, she was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so that has kind of been post uh, publishing this book. But the lessons that we write about in in not what you think about how Scripture gave us so much. Um, hope and peace in our darkest days of infertility and failed adoption attempts were the same um, was the same foundation that we had during walking through our daughter's cancer journey. Um, she's in remission now. Thank goodness. You know, we just got the news a month and a half ago. She's in remission. And all through the journey of her cancer, we also were continuing to find peace and hope um, uh, from the promises of, of what God has given us in scripture and, and his good character. And so we hope that people can find that same um, peace and hope in Christ that we've had even on our darkest days. Yeah, I we were just talking with someone this weekend about that experience. And one of the things we were commenting is how it's popular for our peers to base their understanding of true reality in their personal experiences. And I am so grateful that before this storm came, we had set our understanding of reality into the word of God because it was an anchor for us in such a way that if I had allowed my view of God to be shaped by um, after, you know, nearly seven years of trying to have kids finally bringing home a little girl and then cancer hitting uh, and just kind of rocking us. I would have seen the entire situation and said, God, you're either not there or you're not good to do something uh, to prevent this from happening. But because we had a big understanding of who God was that we see in the scriptures, we began to pray and hope that he would bring himself glory through her healing. And that's what to this point, praise God, he has done. Uh, but even if he hadn't, one thing we were wrestling through along the way is even if our only purpose is to love this little girl in her final days, uh, then that is, uh, we can trust a God who did not spare even his own child, his own son, but gave him up as a ransom, as a penalty, as a sacrifice for us. Uh, we can trust that God, the you know, old Spurgeon quote goes, when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. And so uh, the scriptures were the bedrock of how we viewed God, which gave us a consistency, uh, an anchor in the midst of a storm. The book is Not What You Think. Why the Bible might be nothing we expected, yet everything we need. The authors, Michael and Lauren McAfee, and they have been my guests on Gospel Bound. Michael and Lauren, thank you for this book, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for thanks, having Colin. us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes. Subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.